everybody. This is Jeff Salzman. Welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, February 10th, 2015, and uh, I'm coming to you as always from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here tonight, as always, with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. I have a lot to cover tonight, from Obama's comments at the prayer breakfast to ISIS and the immolation of the Jordanian pilot and the response. I want to do a quick visit back to a couple topics we talked about last week, the movie American Sniper and the vaccine controversy here in America, and also take a look at the interior experience of integral consciousness, uh, because that's one of the things I want to explore here in the integral or uh, daily evolver as well. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I want to do a word from our sponsor. I want to give a shout out to IntegralLife.com, who hosts this podcast Uh, and where it originated four years ago. Integral Life is, of course, the main web portal for all things cutting edge in the integral world. They feature Ken Wilber's latest work, for instance. And they have, gosh, for over 10 years now, I'd say, produced the regular integral spiritual gatherings that I really think have helped move the ball a lot in the creation of an integrally coherent spiritual path and practice. And it's a work in progress. They're continuing at it and um, have just announced, uh, actually about a month ago, uh, a conference called Return to the Heart of Christ Consciousness, which will be held here in Boulder at the beautiful St. Julian Hotel right downtown Boulder, uh, March 27th. So check it out if you're interested. Uh, The Daily Evolver Live podcast this podcast, is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes, by the way, please rate the show. Uh, That helps us. And, of course, it also appears along with additional postings and commentary on my personal blog, dailyevolver.com. For those of you who would like a little help in following along from a sort of an integral theory point of view, I would encourage you to check out a couple charts that can help you. One is the altitudes of development. The other is the quadrants of reality. And both of those can be found if you click the link on the email uh, that you received that reminded you of this call. Or you can also go to the dailyevolver.com and look under the theory tab at the top of the page there. I also want to say here at the beginning that I really love hearing from you. I get wonderful comments and letters, you know, not all so wonderful, but uh, helpful uh, and, um, and really, really sparkly in many cases. And there's a couple ways to contact me. One is through jeff at dailyevolver.com. And the other is to go the, to the Daily Evolver website and uh, click the orange button that is very prominent on the front page there, which is called SpeakPipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E, SpeakPipe, which is an orange button that lets you leave a voicemail. I can leave a voicemail back, um, super simple. And I'm going to have a couple SpeakPipes tonight that I'll play on the show. In fact, I'd like to start with one, if I may. And that's uh, a SpeakPipe that I got yesterday from a listener, Jake Bullock. It was sparked by an integral analysis I did on last week's podcast about the movie American Sniper. And uh, Jake is an interesting commentator on this because, well, I think I'll just let Jake introduce himself. So here he is on SpeakPipe. And Brett, go ahead and play Jake. Hi, Jeff. 
I'm recording this today because your last show was about Chris Kyle, about American Sniper, about how we as integralists uh, should view a, mu- a movie like that. And it really got me thinking about my own experiences. Um, and this is something that I would love to unpack in you know great detail. But I, I have been integrally informed since about 17 when I first read Ken Wilber and have been reading him ever since and have always identified very strongly with the integral movement. But from 18 to 26, um, I was a Navy SEAL sniper. And I went on four combat deployments like Chris and, and did a lot of similar work. Um, and I have to say that I was always very passionate about that job. And I still to this day feel the pull to, to go be a SEAL and to go to war and, and uh, sort of have those experiences that really only exist in, in sort of that combat environment. And at the same time, I still hold these integral viewpoints very strongly. Um, I did assimilate to the culture um, to an extent. And, you know, I, what you said about Chris Kyle and about traditional America it resonated very strongly with me. Not that I held those same belief structures as, as most of my teammates, but that I experienced it firsthand and I know how they thought and what they felt and what they think. And in some cases I felt uh, similarly, in other cases I didn't. Um, and I would love it if you could just unpack this, this sort of juxtaposition between you know, having these integral views, but also having the strong pull to be a SEAL and to go to war. I hope you're all as happy to hear from Jake as I am. You know, an integral Navy SEAL sniper, for heaven's sakes. I'm just, like, you know, thrilled. I want to uh, really, you know, when he asks me to unpack this experience, Jake, uh, I'm happy to participate, but I really want to hear from you. And so anyway, folks, Jake and I have been in email contact, and we're going to be recording a conversation soon. And I'll share it with you as soon as we can. But uh, what an interesting story. I'm just thrilled that, you know, the reach of the, this podcast gets uh, sometimes. I just, I love my job. So uh, thanks again, Jake. We'll be hearing more from you. And now it's time for our sometimes weekly poll. And I want to poll a um, something that happened uh, here in the States. You may have heard about it, even if you're not in the States. But last Thursday, President Obama spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, uh, which is an annual event where presidents deliver homilies for religious leaders, a lot of religious people there. And this year, he made the following comments about the atrocities committed by ISIS. And these have proven to be quite controversial. And I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to ask you whether you think making these comments was a good idea or a bad idea. But first of all, here's what he actually said. Lest we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. In our home country, slavery and Jim Crow were all too often justified in the name of Christ. Murderous extremism, he continued, is not unique to one group or one religion. There is a tendency in us, a sinful tendency, that can pervert and distort our faith. And I'll get back to those comments in a bit, but first I want to ask you, do you think those were a good idea? Press 1. If you think those comments were a bad idea, press 2. I'm sorry for the sort of simplistic nature, but you know, where are you leaning? 1 good, 2 not so good. All right. 
few, while we're tallying that up, I want to just uh, draw your attention to something that really got my attention this week. And I'm calling it the statistic of the week. And it's a little bit of an oddball statistic. I found it in The Economist magazine. But it just floored me when I read it. And it's about the Chinese cinema, of all things. And what they reported on was that box office receipts for movies in China grew 37% in 2014. That's last year. And it's just astonishing when anything grows by over a third in one year. And the growth is seen as continuing here in the future. They're opening 100 screens a week, and uh, they're just in this you know movie boom in China. Now, from an integral perspective, this represents a lot of evolutionary potency. As the late great movie critic Rod, Roger Ebert said, cinema is an art form of perspective taking. Cinema is an art form of perspective taking, and I love that. Uh, movies are all about getting behind the eyes of other people and for a couple hours living their stories and taking their adventures instead of your own. And as I said, you know, this is evolutionarily potent because Consciousness evolution is basically the process of adding perspectives to one psyche. So this is a good thing for China. On the other hand, it seems, you know, proportional in this moment to point out that the Chinese have a long way to go culturally. Um, there was another article in the same issue of The Economist where the writer, his name's Banyan, was writing about how perplexing it is, uh, this growing nationalism in China, and particularly the growing anger and saber-rattling directed by the Chinese to Japan, especially regarding the occupation by Japan of China in World War II. And Banyan writes, quote, as wars fade from living memory, time should heal the emotional scars. But in Asia, it seems only to deepen wounds left by the Second World War. He's particularly talking about China. And in dealing with his you know, confusion here, this is where development theory really comes in handy. Because the idea that time heals all wounds is true only for people who have been adequately steeped in the modern orange mindset. For pre-modern people, time just gives you more of an opportunity to wound your enemy back. And, you know, we know the cycle of revenge can go on for generations and even centuries. Now, many hundreds of millions of Chinese people have a pre-modern worldview. This is not an insult. It's simply an acknowledgement of a stage of development which all people and all cultures go through on their way to modernity and beyond. And, and the majority of Chinese still have to make that leap. Now, of course, there are a lot of people in China who are fully modern and some who are postmodern and integral and beyond. Uh, I pointed a thousand past shows. Uh, China has a couple hundred million people, perhaps 300 million people, uh, populating the coasts that are you know, more world-centric, more or less orange. But in the hinterlands, in these, you know, thousands of hamlets, villages, in the vast interior of the country, 
they're just moving out of what are essentially red fiefdoms. And, you know, this is a big deal in China. It's a big national project to civilize the provinces, uh, you know, with basic services, education, and especially a big uh, campaign of, of, of uh, anti-corruption, of exposing and removing local officials who act like warlords and take bribes and confiscate people's property, and to move things to a more rule-oriented, amber stage of development. And you can see that on your uh, levels of development chart if you downloaded it. Now, the good news is that amber is the world of law and order. The problem is amber is also very nationalistic. We can see this in our own um, world, in our, you know, the conservatives here in the, in the States. Uh, law and order, but also very nationalistic. And in many ways, they're more nationalistic even than red, which tends to splinter into tribal and parochial interests. Uh, but because Amber, you know, basically has a bigger view, it's more organized. It's mentally and psychically, in terms of command and control, able to contain a bigger system. So nationalism actually grows as people develop. And this is, you know, the part of the problem. Uh, and it's a problem, I, I think, uh, coincidentally, uh, that the cinema can actually help solve. Uh, there are two categories of popular movies in mainland China. And, and by the way, when we're talking about Chinese cinema, we're not talking about si Taiwan and, and, and um, Hong Kong, which are as world-class as any cinema in the world. Uh, but in mainland China, there's, as I said, two categories. One are big American blockbusters. You know, we're talking Iron Man, Mission Impossible, Transformers, you know, big superhero comic book movies. And these are basically red morality tales where good defeats evil. Uh, it's loved by adolescents across the world and also by pre-modern people uh, across the world. And then the second big category of Chinese cinema is their indigenous cinema, which is heavily censored, uh, not to critique the country or party. And these two are morality tales, but they're more amber morality tales. It's not about battles between good and evil, which is, you know, the red, but about love and family and struggle and triumph and movies that glorify China and its history. And the, you know, lots and lots of screwball comedies. <laughs> it just seems to be a feature of this level of development. I think, I think it's probably the best correlation in America would be American cinema in the 40s. So it's probably a bit of a horse race here. If we look at the whole sort of Chinese system, you know, as we're talking about at least these two pieces of it, we can be expecting more nationalism out of China as its vast center of gravity becomes more amber or traditional. But we also hope that they will be able to metabolize more of it at the movies instead of on real battlefields. And uh, that's how that works. And with the 37% annual growth rate, I'm betting on the movies. All right. Well, then let's go back to um, the poll question and the next part of the podcast, which is another edition of Obamapologia, uh, wherein I explain and justify all things Obama. I don't think I need much help here tonight. 91% of you thought his comments were good, and 9% of you thought not. So, you know, I, I think I'm in the company of a lot of Obama apologists here. Uh, 
So anyway, let me just give you some of the thinking around this. You know, occasionally, as an Obama apologist, I have to uh, issue a, an integral demerit. I did this a couple of weeks ago when Obama failed to represent America adequately in the Charlie Hebdo Memorial in Paris. And I'm not so sure, as apparently you are, about how good or bad this was. The occasion for a demerit about this national prayer breakfast comment. And, you know, I read it about, you know, the, the Crusades and about slavery and so forth. And when I heard him say this, I thought to myself, oh, Barack, please let me say this shit, not you. You know, you just stand up there and praise Jesus for another couple of years and let me take care of this other stuff. But he didn't listen to me. And so he's really gotten creamed. Uh, from pretty much all sides for doing this in uh, the American media, uh, especially, of course, the traditionalist right. This is the Fox News people, the conservatives, because, you know, at least for the most extreme of them, it feeds into their absolutely real fears that this Obama, who rhymes with Osama, by the way, is really not a Christian at all and is actually tilling the land for the enemy. And by that, I mean the capital E enemy, the devil. But even, you know, the moderate conservatives and, and moderates in general saw it as a gaffe simply for the, you know, unfortunate timing and lack of context of the comments in the larger events of the world. Because uh, his speech took place on last Thursday, which is two days after the world saw something else that was really quite shocking. And this was, and you all know it, this 30-minute four-camera video, edited like a video game with explosions and quick-cut graphics and music and big narrator and type and, you know, reveals this big, this heroic storyline, except there really wasn't much of a storyline. It, it was just an iron cage with a man standing in it, ultimately, in an orange jumpsuit soaked in kerosene who was about to be burned alive. I mean, it's just Shocking. I mean, there, we, then we go back to these MTV crosscuts, and then we see the guy in the cage, and then there's the guy with the torch, and then there's the close-up, and the, the wide shot, and the pan, and the zoom, and the, you know, the profile. And, you know, this video had high production values, as they say, and, and, and this is where I stopped watching, but I understand they showed it all in graphic cinematic detail. So, Two days after this, at the prayer breakfast, Obama brings up Christian atrocities of a thousand years ago. My initial reaction was demerit, I must say. But I will say one thing. It's maybe, you know, there's one minor little detail here is that the comments are, of course, 100% true. Uh, Christians did all of these things and worse a thousand years ago. Uh, but it's all so much better understood in a developmental context, and Obama didn't provide that. Um, you know, I read the whole speech, and it's, you know, it's beautiful in many ways. His speeches always are, and, you know, and, and, and you know, it's integral in many ways. But, you know, his explanation for ISIS is not very integral, actually. He talks about it being evil and perverting the faith. And I'm not sure if Obama really believes in evil uh, or not. You know, I mean, I, I think he sort of polishes the edges of his theology for, you know, to, to be president. But, you know, let's look at, you know, the stages of how evil is perceived. 
And of course, in pre-modern, particularly amber stages of development, the traditionalist stage, evil is just evil. It's the devil. It's God. You know, we've talked about this before. The world is divided between good and evil, cosmic battle, and the devil and his minions are doing battle with God. And for at that stage of the game, any other religion is evil. So Islam is evil for traditionalist Christians, and of course, for Islamic traditionalists, Christianity is the religion of heretics and infidels. So then we have orange evil. And uh, and this is sort of, you know, that, that ISIS is perverting a great religion. That religion's not evil, but ISIS is. But we're still left with evil. Or maybe we're left with, and this is another orange explanation that sort of tends to go to green, and that's that they're psychotics. That's sort of the therapeutic answer, that they're psychopaths. And it's probably true to a degree. Certainly, the, you know, the people who are being drawn to jihad are probably more than their share psychopathic. Uh, but that's not really going to do us a, ISIS any good, uh, because these people are generally unmanageable anyway. But at any rate, you know, we're still left with that evil thing. And then when we get to green, the view is that they're criminals. They're murderous extremists not Islamic extremists. And I can appreciate that distinction. I really think Obama, uh, history will look very well on his unwillingness to tar this whole religion uh, with uh, these extremists and, and use words like Islamic extremists and all of the stuff that the right wing wants him to do. They're all apoplectic about that. But even in this view, uh, ISIS is really just trying to, they're just using their religion as a thin veneer but what they really want is to gain power and you know take over, and so we see headlines in the left, uh, even on uh, Vox, like Ezra Klein's site. Uh, the headline I remember: Charlie Hebdo has nothing to do with religion, and you know it's not credible to me. I mean, these assassins in Paris, and and ISIS too, they didn't just go shoot up the crowds at the Eiffel Tower which would have been actually much more effective in terrorizing the world and hurting France. No, they went to some trouble to find these cartoonists who mocked the uh, prophet and, and God. And, you know, it was absolutely a religious motivation. Uh, one of my ger listeners in Germany sent me a video this week of a, I should post it actually, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a German jihadi, one of the Germans who have been, you know, went to Syria to, to fight with the, the ISIS. And they're interviewing him. He's just a regular, you know, Western German guy. But, you know, every other word is Allah. It's all about religion to this guy. And so let's not kid ourselves. So then, you know, we go through the amber evil, orange evil, the green explanation evil. Uh, what's the integral view here? How does integral go about explaining a rampaging mob of militants who roam the countryside, killing, crucifying, beheading, burning people alive, stealing girls as brides, the whole thing. And Integral, actually, has the most astonishing explanation of all, which is one that almost nobody else wants to believe. <laughs> and that is that this is perfectly normal human behavior. Except for the last about, well, 0.01% of human history. That's one-tenth of one percent of human history. Before that, the previous 99.9 percent .9 of human history uh, uh, that ended somewhere between the Enlightenment 300 years ago, maybe slavery 150 years ago, however you want to slice and dice that, 
But before that, it was plunder, conquest, beheadings, the whole horse show. Uh, it's standard issue, pre-modern behavior. Uh, so it helps us to see this, that the, these people are actually true believers. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if it works in the 21st century. It, it clearly has so far, but I think the tide is turning. And I think this week may be a week that we mark as the turning of the tide uh, for a couple reasons. One is that terrorism, in order to work, has to continue to raise the shock value. It's like another beheading just wasn't going to get our attention like it did six months ago. Uh, you know, we needed the, the immolation. And I got to say, I'm waiting for the, you know, the what's next. I mean, are they going to get to where we have the 24-hour camera on a caged coffin? You know, that I don't know if you know the caged coffin was a diabolical little device that they used in the Inquisition, where it was basically like a, a human birdcage. You were just surrounded as close as you could be, where your arms were sticking out from this metal cage. And they would hoist you up just out of reach um, in, in, the, in the cathedrals. You can still see these cages in these some of these European cathedrals. And then, you know, people would come up and throw shit at you, literally, I'm afraid, jeer at you as you begged for food, water, and then they would watch you as you would slowly succumb and die. And then the birds eat out your eyes and the maggots eat your flesh. And before you know it, you're a skeleton. And that is a warning to all. I mean, it's actually fairly good public relations in a pre-modern uh, era or mass communication. Um, so, you know, ISIS has a ways to go before they catch up to the actual ingenuity of the brutality of the medieval Inquisition. Uh, maybe Obama should have brought that up. But, but again, the tipping point, uh, and, and so, you know, the horror is, is actually over the line, I think. This is the, you know, the consensus view is that this burning video really was a blunder in terms of the geopolitical goals of ISIS. It was a, the, one, a blunder for them. And that it's really what's going to galvanize uh, the Arab world against them. It, it certainly has Jordan, which is understandable. Uh, but I think it's a turning point in the psyche of the modern Arab world. Um, you know, according if you see the Twitters and some of the articles in Al Jazeera and so forth, moderates are really uh, saying, this is not me. This is not us. This is not Islam. And that's becoming more and more obvious. But again, whether or not it's successful actually misses the real point of ISIS's motivation, which is, they actually believe it. They believe that God has sent them to rout the infidels and bring forth the kingdom of God, which is all laid out in their book, the Quran. And these people are less worried about being successful than they are about being faithful. And we miss the point when we focus on the brutality and call it evil or crazy or power mad or whatever our explanations are, because there's another feature at this stage of development, that this pre-modern, this sort of red-amber stage of development that's really worth remembering, and that is it's not just brutal, it's magical. They don't think rationally. Rationality is two stages in their future. They think magically. So their story is something like this, you know, look at you, you infidels, with your tanks and your planes and your bombs, and your skyscrapers and your, you know, civilization, 
You have no idea who you're up against. We're the army of Allah, the one true God. And of course, this is the same thinking behind the God that parted the Red Sea for Moses and the same God who had David kill Goliath, you know, these unlikely victories because, you know, there's no match against God. So, you know, we're fine. I, we'd much rather be on our side with God than on your side with your big army. And, and furthermore, in their thinking, even dying is a victory. Because, you know, if, if your goal is to be faithful, not successful, then, you know, you're rewarded in death. Uh, it's your instant paradise. Uh, you know, starting with your, what is it, 72 virgins or however many they are. But yeah, pretty appealing. So they fight, ISIS fights for the same reason people have always fought, because they think they'll win. <laughs> God will make them win. And they will gain something in this effort, the, the you know, 14th Caliphate or whatever it is. And history shows that people will fight against impossible odds when they think they can win. And they will only be disabused of this notion when they lose, lose, lose. And this is the second thing that, that, where the tide may be turning is that ISIS, you know, that this coalition with, you know, American air power intelligence and, you know, Iraqi uh, boots in the grounds and the Kurds and so forth is actually having an effect. So uh, we see ISIS being stopped, turned back in certain areas, and apparently we're about to witness in the next week a major offensive on Mosul in Fallujah, uh, where we may see um, them push back from there too. Um, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. So, they think they're going to win. And as for Obama, it's almost the same thing. I mean, I don't want to say the same thing, but it's sort of the same thinking is that he had to know the reaction. You know, ISIS had to know the reaction too, you know, of, of Jordanians when they burned the pilot. I mean, Obama knew he was going to, you know, be screamed at for blood libel by conservative Christians for the comments he made. So why did he do it? Uh, he thought he was right. Uh, he was doing a speech. He didn't have time for a big history lesson like we do here, you know, like we integralists do all the time. But he was also taking into account that his audience was, was, was not just Americans. There were clergy from over 100 countries in the audience there. And moderate Muslims were listening all over the world. And that actually matters. So he was taking into account the politics of the world, not just the politics of the U.S. And with that in mind, I think he may have done the right thing. And history may be a lot more friendly to this speech than the real-time knee-jerk reaction of the various outrage industries here in the U.S. So I think maybe no demerit. Maybe he gets a merit badge instead. Okay, let's move along then. I'd like to um, actually share a couple messages I received this week about another topic that we talked about on last week's podcast, and that's vaccinations. It's a big issue, big controversy here in the States where we have a lot of people um, actually on the far left and the far right who are uh, uh, opting not to vaccinate their kids. And You know, epidemiologists are afraid that we're going to get below a certain critical mass where um, the, the vaccinations no, don't uh, protect the general public. And 
you know, one of the things I'm trying to address here in the Daily Evolver is not just how to understand integral theory, but how to apply it to our lives integrally. And, and I got two comments, one from SpeakPipe, it's a voicemail, and the other an email. And I want to share both of them. So um, let's start with um, the email from Stephen uh, Brett. Uh, and he talks about his reactions to the vaccine controversy that we talked about last week. Welcome, Stephen. On the vaccine issue, part of it, of course, is the Internet that allows any kind of like-minded people to congregate and convince each other and reinforce each other. Part of it uh, is just a, a lack of understanding of the way science works. And what I see, interestingly enough, is a kind of conspiracy theory mind, as if tens of thousands of researchers over decades could be kept quiet, you know, and their, their, their negative findings about vaccination suppressed. You know, it's just, it's not possible. You know, I am almost 70 years old, and I grew up, well, I have mumps and measles, and my sister had scarlet fever, and people died of whooping cough. Um, and of course, we all lived through the polio epidemic, which was horrific, right? And they closed the swimming pools, and people didn't go out that summer, and, you know, and people died. Yeah, okay, thanks, Stephen. And I, I'm 60, I went through that too. I mean, we had, I had measles, I had uh, scarlet fever. Um, a lot of kids had whoop, whooping cough. And it's just, you know, part of the uh, march of progress forward that these diseases, which, you know, did you have the measles yet? I mean, that's how we saw it. I mean, getting, the best way to get, get vaccinated against the measles was to have them. And then you didn't get them again and chicken pox and so forth. And it's a, you know, a, a marker of our move forward that that's no longer acceptable because some kids got too sick and some kids died. And, you know, certainly remember the polio epidemic. That was before my time. So, you know, times change. And I also wanted to um, read an email that I got from one of our listeners, Lori, on the same topic. And I want to read this because I think it's really one of the best letters I've ever received in terms of actually laying out how an integral view helps somebody deal with a really difficult real-life problem. And it's, you know, a few paragraphs, probably three minutes. So just relax and listen, because this letter is worthy. And it's from a listener, Lori. And Lori writes, I just listened to your recording of last week's show, and I'd like to comment on vaccinations. I have two sons who did not receive all of their vaccinations when they were young. The older one was diagnosed with a severe neurological condition, unrelated to vaccines. But we stopped giving any more vaccines because he was considered at risk for further impairment. Because of his condition, I simply decided to stop giving his younger brother any more vaccines as well. This was several years ago. Last year, my younger son entered into public school and we were faced with the issue of updating one of his vaccinations or stating that we had a religious belief that would exempt him from having the missing vaccine. Now, I'm fully aware of all the green and orange considerations that were discussed in your broadcast. On one hand, for the last 20 years, I've been giving my older son pharmaceuticals to try to control his seizure condition. I've witnessed both their effectiveness and ineffectiveness, and their sometimes horrible side effects. She's talking about the medicines. On the other hand, I've opted for natural remedies to heal nearly everything else for my kids and myself. 
We've also tried natural remedies for my older son's seizures, including cannabis, but nothing has helped as much as the pharmaceuticals. So I take advantage of Orin's modern medicine, and I also take advantage of Green's healing sensibility, energy healing, and opting for natural herbs and foods. I take the best of both memes. As for the vaccine question, I decided to go ahead and give my son the vaccine the school wanted him to have. Initially, I had a very hard time coming to that decision. I've seen the positives and the negatives of what chemicals can do to a growing brain and nervous system. I've seen both the politics and the personal. Having all this information and experience, my mind could not make the decision. Sounds like an integral dilemma. So I went inside. I felt for the answer. I tapped into that dimension where information is in the form of feeling, and I felt that it would be okay for my son to have the vaccine. And here's where Lori gets into a real integral inquiry in this last paragraph. She says, I don't hear a lot in terms of definitions when we talk about second tier, and I guess that's because it's still emerging. Surely, though, we must be talking about expanding our decision-making ability and expanding our sources of information from those of facts and physical emotion experience. We want to expand to include what we can learn from our experience of states that are non-physical, non-emotional, and non-intellectual. This is where I find myself going more and more to understand the world and to make decisions when things are complicated. When I see validity in all points of view, might this be a route to the synthesis second tier is striving for? And wow, I, I, again, I love that letter and thank you, Lori. And, you know, this is basically a woman who is using integral as a, an inventory to make sure that she's covered the waterfront. She talks about a quadrant inquiry. She says, I've seen positives and negatives of what chemicals which is lower right, can do to a growing brain and nervous system, which is the upper right quadrant. I see both the politics, the lower left, and the personal, the upper left. So you hold all those things at the same time. And then she's furthermore non-ideological when it comes to orange medicine and green healing. Uh, and I'd add that we integralists would also be wise to, in addition to what she's talking about, to consider letting in magic, which is a first-tier tribal altitude, uh, faith and surrender, which is from the traditionalist altitude, and, and add those as well to round out the spiral of development. So this is all, you know, this is a natural thing for us integralists to do. It's just, you know, it's, it's like Ken says, if you keep growing long enough, you just grow into this, where, you know, you have a process of deliberate, intentional perspective-taking. We become progressively less and less gripped by any single perspective and begin to identify with the view that can see all of them. So, you know, I always love that line from, from uh, uh, Walt Whitman where he talks about inhaling great drafts of space. And as we inhale this great draft of space and we begin to identify with the space, we see that this is a space within, it's not any one perspective, like it's what we used to have, 
but it's the space within which perspectives arise under their own power. And that's a big developmental move. That's as good an explanation of an integral awakening as there is. We, we identify with the space within which perspectives arise under their own power. And as we do that, we see that this space itself has qualities of wisdom, intelligence, and yes, even love. It's that the qualities of the space itself. And there is no problem in the world, there's no problem in the world with seeing this dimension as a, a divine dimension of reality. Uh, whether we see it as our divine self or higher self, bigger self, that's good. Or whether we see it as something other than ourselves, as a loving intelligence, as guides, or God. It's all good too. But however we see it, we find a new order of answer is there. I think of the famous quote by Einstein where he said, problems cannot be solved at the level of awareness that created them. And this is what he's talking about, a new consciousness. Uh, in the case of integral, it's a new consciousness that includes all of the above. So it's always, that's always the answer at integral, all of the above. Magic, myth, rationality, sensitivity, um, interior, exterior, individual, collective. And as we hold all of that, we experience solutions. And sometimes we experience those as, as, as a feeling, like glory did, or an upswelling of insight, uh, a knowing. Um, uh, but however we experience it, it's marked by a deep relaxation, um, a self-authenticating quality, a confidence that's not egoic, and that's key. Uh, in fact, it often requires a letting go of ego, a surrendering, which you can sort of feel between the lines when Lori said that she, you know, once she felt this, she could relax around, you know, the vaccination for the second son. And, um, you know, it just gives us this sense of fulfillment and this realization that all is well. All right, so that's what I wanted to cover for tonight. It's always a pleasure being with you. I want to uh, mention that uh, next week is the last uh, Daily Evolver of this season, and we'll take a few weeks off. We will be phasing out the live telephone call uh, via the Maestro system after next week, which is the 17th. So you can still get on as usual next week, but after that, we're still going to be broadcasting. So you can still listen in real time on Tuesday nights, and I love that you do. It's really great to know that people are here listening. But it'll be via the web in the future. Uh, it'll be on um, Integral Radio, which is a new format of Integral Life. And um, you can also find uh, all the information about this on the dailyevolver.com homepage, the Facebook Daily Evolver page. And you can also go to uh, the app that we'll be using, which is Mixler, uh, which is M-I-X-L-R. And you can uh, actually listen to it on your cell phone. Uh, after the, the next um, time. And you can actually, Brett, people could be doing that now, right? If they want to be yeah. trying it out. And then after uh, after the hiatus, it'll be the only way to get off. Right? That's right. All right. Well, then, other than that, I think we're good. And uh, that's going to do it for tonight. And we will see you here, same time, same station, next Tuesday night. That'll be February 17th. 
Until then, keep it integral, folks. Take care. Jeff Salzman, signing off.